Welcome to another VO Radio Show. My name's Andrew Peters, and up in Sydney... Ho, 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 Robbo. <laughs> hey, first time you've got to use a rhyme. That's good, I like That's it. That's right, exactly. Just call me doesn't MC work. Robbo. Yeah, it doesn't work at Easter. Um, now, we've got a special Christmas show today. We've got a huge um, show today. For those of us who listen to us regularly and get used to the 20-minute quick ones, yep. <laughs> you've got to sit by. back this week. <laughs> <laughs> Pull out the day bed. You could be on it for a while. Uh, uh, here, slide across the slab and get ready. That's right. Um, there's a, a new product that's just come out from uh, Australian company Rode, uh, which is an audio interface, a USB interface. It's called the AI One, mm. and uh, it looks pretty interesting. So we're going to talk to the um, the guy that designed it, who's um, joined the company. So we'll be talking to him on the phone a bit later. Just before we go, move on, just pronounce his surname for me. Uh, I think it's pronounced Schillebeeks. <laughs> Peter and then there was silence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had to think about that one for a minute. Um, but yeah, he's got a really interesting background. He's um, designed a lot of stuff in Europe, and now he's here designing for road. But mm. here we are. With our special guest, we've got two of them lined up for us from Los Angeles, George Witham. Hey. <laughs> now, you guys Excellent. have no idea what you, was just going on there, but I have a Santa hat right. that plays that song and then rings a single jingle bell on the top back and forth. <laughs> Like a manic waving hand. And I have it strapped to a bike helmet because I bike a lot. And so I ride around town with this thing looking like a, like a loon, but it makes people smile. And we certainly could use a lot of that these days. But yes, yes I am George Whittam from georgethetech.com. <laughs> you'll, have to, uh, you'll have to send us a photo we can stick up in the show notes. I've seen you wearing that, actually. I saw a, um, on one of your Facebook? mini podcasts, I think, <laughs> with that hat on. Yes, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I will. Pretty sure. I will send it in. <laughs> Excellent. Our other guest joining us today from Chicago. Now, guessing that it's winter, I would say it's probably blowing a gale, maybe a bit of snow. Uh, Robert Marshall from Source Elements. Hello. <laughs> yes. And is it snowing? It's not snowing, actually. But we did have snow earlier. But I think today it's it's like 40 degrees Fahrenheit and the the snow and ice that was there the other day is kind of melting for the most part. So not too bad. 40 degrees Fahrenheit, we're 40 degrees centigrade. So there you go, we do have something in common. Parody. It's 55 <laughs> degrees Fahrenheit here in Topanga. That's really uh, cold no, for you, you isn't it? Brr, it's like in the low 40s at night. We're really chilly here. Wow. You can just go out to the bonfires to warm up if you want, George. <laughs> oh, yeah, the forest, the 280,000-acre fire burning up the road, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, I saw the footage of that. That was extraordinary. Over 420 square miles. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I know many people displaced and in yeah. Ojai and now in Santa Barbara. Just they're all displaced. Mm. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Enough of that. We'll uh, Christmas let's try and keep the home fires fires show with. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Now, the uh, because we're talking about uh, you know a bit of Santa action. What have you got under your tree, George? Oh, what kind of cool things that am I getting or hoping to get? Yeah, what's on yeah. your Christmas list? I guess the most recent discovery that I made today was a really, really handy dandy, very small, compact, all-in-one little mixer device. I discovered from Soundcraft called the Notepad 5. And I like it because it's um, for someone that needs something to get started with or podcasting or travel. It's a hundred bucks, has a nice mic preamp in it, has a USB interface as well. It's like a teeny mixer. It also has a monitor output. So if you need to send a mix somewhere else, it can do that, which is handy if you're trying to add an auxiliary mix to your studio for bringing in Zoom or Skype or something. And also it brings the USB return up on its own fader. So that can also be routed back onto itself or into your headphones. It's, it's, I know it doesn't sound like a big deal, but nobody makes anything that does all that stuff in a box that tiny um, that just has a mic input and a couple line inputs. It's real simple. And so that's one of my cool new discoveries. problem I have is because I do have rather large sausage fingers and uh, those things inevitably have tiny little knobs and faders and I can't actually just press one button without hitting everything. <laughs> right. <laughs> that could be a problem. Yeah. Okay, well, it's not under my tree then. Uh, Robert, <laughs> what, what have you got on your wish list? Oh, boy. From the audio perspective, I think. 
I, it doesn't have to be audio. Oh, just in general? I, I'd, I'd, yeah. I'd like a Porsche. You know, just a car. <laughs> under, under, under the tree outside. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, I, I, I guess I haven't thought about me that much, I guess. So I, I really don't know. Um, realistically. It's being a dad for you. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Thinking about things that I want that, that it doesn't have to be uh, pro audio related. I want the Iowa XO9 Bluetooth speaker. Wow. What's that? It is one seriously really awesome Bluetooth speaker for $300 US that blows everything away. And it's actually portable. It has a battery pack as well. It's like a modern day boom box, but sounds freaking amazing. That's what I want. Does it use APT? I believe that is a very good question, uh, Robert, and Jermaine to, uh, to who's here on the show today. Um, yes, it has Bluetooth via APTX. That's why. So it will give you that really high fidelity Bluetooth, which don't buy anything Bluetooth without that. It's, it's the low latency that makes the APT thing so applicable. The only way to make that in sync and work with, you know, your stereo system and your wired speakers in front is the APT codec, which literally has like a two millisecond encode decode time. It's stupid Ooh. fast because it's not really like MPEG, which is trying to interpret the sound and decide what you can and can't hear. It encodes the whole thing. It's adaptive linear. It's not really perceptual. I think you need to tie that in later to tell us about APTX Source Connect Pro. But Source Connect used to do about. the APT codec for a long time. It eventually got removed from it for various reasons. But yeah, the, and, and on the internet, that low latency doesn't make a difference. It's like, wow, I saved 20 milliseconds in encode time and I still have to huff it through the internet for 200 milliseconds or whatever the ping ah. time is. So... But for something where you're working locally in your theater and you want to have super low latency wireless speakers that stay in sync with your monitor, APT is really great. Cool. Well, there you go. AIWAEXOS-9, portable Bluetooth speaker. I want one of them under my tree. 200 watts, baby. Ooh, nice. Robbo, what's your wish list, Robbo? Well, I've just changed my mind. I just, after uh, hearing that, how could you not want one of those? I, I'm, I'm a bit, I'm a bit of a woodwork fan in my spare time, so I reckon one of those in the shed to uh, scare the neighbours away on a Sunday afternoon while I'm making a coffee table for the missus or something. <laughs> no, nice. Well, I've got uh, my Christmas present already taken care of, and I bought uh, a pair of <laughs> 1960s VU meters from a guy in Sydney, sent them off to uh, a techie dude, uh, a guy called uh, Ross Giles, and uh, he's actually tested them and built a 19-inch rack of these two VU meters ready to go. Cool. It's going to be great. So it'll have like an XLR in and out, sort of like a pass-through for each yep. channel? exactly. So, so stupid That's question. Fun. Like, Europe's all about the PPM meter and... Like, you know, the U.S. is VU meters. Is Australia also specifically VU? Depends what you're working in. Um, for TV, like anywhere, I guess these days, it's all, um, it's all loudness metering. I do have a, uh, analog VU meters here in the studio that were actually given to me uh, when I left a studio that I used to work at. Um, I, I'll be honest, if I'm doing radio stuff, I, I don't really worry... I just I use peaks to check at the end of the mix, but from the majority of the time I work to these analog VUs. Well, and the it's funny because I, I like 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 I do a lot of post mixing and whatnot, and I still am always like I I love VU meters. I relate to them. I've been looking at them for thirty years. I mm. like given that ballistic and the way it acts, it's like mm. I can tell where I'm at in a sense. That's right. And so even if I don't have VU meters. I'm always looking for like a good average meter, you know, and so there's your Doro or whatever, but um, yeah. it's kind of funny how, you know, it, it does help to keep your bearings, and I agree, you can just like mix up to the wall with peak metering, but I, I guess as an engineer, it's just something that you relate to, and I can totally understand like, oh, I want a pair of VU meters, very specifically, because, yeah. yeah. I just want them because they look good. Well, that's what I was going to say. VU meters were one of the first things that made me want to be an audio engineer because I walked into a, a production suite in a radio station and saw the VU meters bouncing around and went, cool. <laughs> I was just watching a video, actually, of uh, it's a, a retro thing someone shot back in 92 uh, in the studio at Capital Radio in London. And uh, it actually was interesting because the one thing that I was fascinated by because I went there back in the 80s and I remember they had this huge microphone hanging on cables. But the interesting thing was the guys working off reel-to-reel cart machines. Sensational. 
Mm, loved it. It's funny talking about real to real. I was only relating this story the other day. I um, I had to wait about seven years to get my first audio job because my dad was a butcher and made me do my butcher's apprenticeship with him before I, you know, went off into that fancy radio land where there was no job security. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and uh, yeah, I can't I hear to- you, Robbo. Oh, hello. Yeah, yeah maybe, uh, maybe, maybe everyone do a refresh. Well, Total this hang on, hang on. This might be what I was wanted to talk to Robert about. Have I gone all fuzzy? No, you went all quick. That. You went all Skypey for a while. Yeah, okay. Because <laughs> if I record, if I record what I'm sending out off Source Connect now, what's getting sent out is perfectly clear. Yet what's being received at the other end starts breaking up. And what's going on with like, a connection like this? Because because of the way that like Source Connect kind of does its conferences is now we're all using a lot more bandwidth because we're all receiving and sending directly to each other. It's not like uh, when Source Connect Pro does a conference where there's a middle and a star and one person mm. is in direct control over who hears what, so everyone has a single stream going and only one person has all the multiple streams. So Chrome can you know, keep the latency lower by meshing it together directly user to user, but it also puts a lot more strain on the system because now everybody is receiving from three people. And sending right. to three people as well. Time to update the uh, internet plan then. By the start. I'd say yeah, because you're still on ADSL, aren't you? No, well, no, I'm on cable. Okay, but you're not NBN. You're not fiber optic. Well, no, because I've decided not to. Because everybody who I've spoken to who've done that are saying it's shit. Oh, okay, fair enough. Yeah. But what What did you just change? Because you went through like a bad spot and then it kind of cleared up. That's the thing. I didn't change anything. So, so it's like you're you're on cable and. It's either, um, is there anybody else using your bandwidth at your house? Uh, no, all the kids are in the pool and the wife's in the kitchen, so I doubt it. So it could be like your neighbor in the time of day, but I don't think when that happened, anybody else was all, br- I think only you were sounding weird. Yeah, so right. it kind of points at your bandwidth, but something happened yeah. to your bandwidth for a moment in time, basically. Yeah, yeah the issue with cable modems is you're basically on a LAN so Mm. to speak, with the neighbors. So Mm. your bandwidth is really being kind of distributed among several others in the area. Yeah, yeah. So it can be extremely fast in spurts if nobody else is using it, but then it can get extremely slow at time from time to time when other people are uh, hitting it pretty hard. So that's one issue with cables specifically. Yeah. In in one sense, it's the same as every internet connection because all these internet service providers are selling more bandwidth than they've got bandwidth for. And that's just the nature of the business, although they're trying to screw that up too. But with cable, and I think what George is speaking to directly is that there's more points of aggregation with cable. So cable kind of groups a whole bunch of people up in a neighborhood and then sends that connection on to another bigger group that sends that on. And eventually it finds its way directly to the big pipe on the Internet that the cable provider has literally for like all of its customers in a huge area. And so they're hoping that their 1,000 customers can all fit within 200 gigs or whatever they bought you know, to the main internet connection. When you compare that to DSL and other connections, those all aggregate usually at a single point at the central office. And so there's fewer individual points of congestion. Like you're still down to, has the internet service provider bought enough bandwidth to handle all their customers? But there's more points in the line that that happens with cable than with DSL. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because I live in a, a small seaside town. There's about 2,000 people here. And we're on uh, fiber optic cable. But I assume because of the lack of population here, I get pretty good ba- bandwidth. Makes sense. Well, it's also pretty shit service because there's guys who I know who've put it on and are actually getting, <laughs> actually getting slower speeds than ADSL. So Yeah, for me it was perfect because I was on ADSL down here. And when I changed the NBN, it went from 3.4 to 34 meg per second. Well, that was the you difference. know what that means. <laughs> you need to get a better router. And I have been dealing with this today. Not that we're going on too many tangents, but isn't that what this is all about? That's right. Um, <laughs> I had a client today who was complaining about instability with his cable modem. Um, and he even had a dedicated cable modem put in his office to not share the internet with the rest of the house, which is, a you know, sound logic, but... In the end, it actually made it worse. So I told him, you know, ditch the cable modem and get whatever the other competing system is in his area. It's AT&T U-verse. And I said, get that. But you're not dedicated to only one connection if you get the right router. And the router I think you should get is the Synology RT2600AC router. Because 
among many other things why it's a kick-ass router, it has what's called dual WAN ports. So you can plug in two ISPs on totally different systems into your router and you get distributed network connectivity. So if one of them is logged, backlogged or goes down, the other one will seamlessly take over. So that would be wow. my recommendation. If you need system critical, you know, mission critical, you know, nearly 100% uptime using, you know, consumer grade internet connections, something like this could be the way to go. Well, that's interesting because that's what Robert was talking about uh, with the um, the ISDN converter. That uh, yeah, I think Robert was about to speak up about that. Yeah, I was like, hey, this sounds like what we do, and it's it's interesting because it's similar and different. What, what you're talking about, George, is a load balancer, right? You know what? I it's this Synology thing. I think it just depends on how the software is configured. I don't know if it's just load balancing or if it's failback. I haven't read the the manual on it yet. But what, um, I'm, what I'm what I'm pretty sure it's, it's not both. is packet for packet redundancy, load balancing and failover support. But it may not be distributed between the two. Well, if if you think about it, distributed is very hard to do, especially with streaming services, because you got two connections from two different places on the public internet. So if you had a connection coming in from Source Connect, really, it's talking to one of those two connections. It can't talk to both at the same time. So it's it's a load balance in a kind of a static way or it's mm-hmm. obviously a failover which is sort of like a, a very big <laughs> load balance like this all went away switch to this right. what, mm-hmm. what we're doing and the first product we have that's sort of addressing this is the VISDN product and it uses one or if you can give it two separate internet connections it's literally going to use them both at the same time so every packet that goes out and every packet you're receiving is there's two to pick from, and it's always just a race with which provider provides the best service, literally in a packet. It's like packet. diversity internet. Same thing as the wireless microphones, exactly. Like, wow. It's diversity. That's exactly what it is. And, 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 and that's what we're trying to achieve is route diversity so that you know, at some point your two internet service providers probably do end up on the same pipe, but we're trying to keep them as separate as possible, ideally end-to-end on that connection, you know? Going across the country, at some point, AT&T and Comcast might both use Level 3. But at least right. on its trip to Level 3, it's, it's using two separate providers. And therefore, there's, you know, it's, it's an improvement by more than just double. Because statistically, the chances of both these providers dropping the exact same packet at the same time, pretty low. And we found that it's really helped allow at least VISDN to be really, with two internet connections, the same latency and performance and reliability that you find with ISDN. And as you know, traditionally, every other IP system is, if it is as low latency, it's going to be like on a rubber band. Or Source Connect, which has higher latency and is able to keep that connection the same. You know, But one way or the other, the internet and its sort of ups and downs either cause you to increase the latency or take a hit on the reliability, and using two internet systems allows you to kind of have both ways. So if anybody understood that, please uh, send us an email. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I totally get it. Was it that bad? (laughs) No, it it totally hits home, because here in Topanga, there's probably literally a single fiber that runs into the canyon. And so this summer, we were having horrible problems with Fios, which is a fiber optic to the home. Yep. Um, it was very unstable. And we were all online in a, on a local social media network called Nextdoor, complaining, 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 trying to figure out why is this happening, who's, who's at fault. And then people using Spectrum, which is cable modem, were also complaining about connectivity issues and having instability problems and on and on. So there wasn't like a clear loser or winner here. And it makes it pretty clear to me that, yeah, they, at the end of the day, they're both connecting to the same upstream pipe. And if that upstream pipe has problems, we all have problems. Exactly. Especially if you're in a place where there's not a lot of options for that for that ultimate connection to the Internet. That's right. I mean, and, and as time goes on, we become more and more reliant on Internet. Uh, that if something does go wrong, we're um, done, finished can't work it'd be on the level of like losing power hmm. yeah i lost exactly. connection here the other day we had um a lightning strike down the road somewhere that i don't know did something to the internet rang the telco and you know yes there's an outage there's been a lightning strike blah 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 i had four mixes that i need to get to a client so so i had to that because they couldn't tell me how long the outage was going to be so i ended up having to dump them onto a usb and drive across the other side of sydney and drop them off so um yeah a, yeah 
Hurt. I've had a similar thing where I've lost uh, lost internet here and I had to record and then transfer everything onto a USB stick, uh, onto the laptop, drive up to the lookout where I got coverage with my phone and then hotspot to send oh, yeah. files out. Yeah, right. And that that was going for a week while the internet was down here. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to go on a cruise, which I've never done before. And honestly, one of the most stressful things about this is that I'm not going to have internet for significant amounts of time. I think I'm going to have a health problem because of it. <laughs> Did you? But didn't you set Joe Cipriano up with uh, Source Connect when he went on a cruise? There have been people who've done Source Connects on cruises. The problem is, I don't want to know how much they paid for the bandwidth. Ah. Uh. Well, it depends who paid. We did a test on a uh, Royal Caribbean cruise line in night in 2007, and it may have been a ship to shore connection because it never went too far from the shore. So it may have been using like a microwave or a ship to shore connection. I don't know what, but we did test Source Connect while on the boat. It worked great. I mean, talking about these different connections. So, I mean, within the first six months of Source Connect coming out, um, I talked to some guy at a radio station who was thrilled to be driving around the parking lot of his car with a hotspot and connected to me. And then I connected with Rebecca in an airplane, which is not a good environment to do any voiceover work. <laughs> no, <I'm sorry. laughs> yeah, your Bose headphones, yeah. Um, and then after that, it was um, the ship connections. And we've had people connect um, ships in the Mediterranean, and I know the Caribbean, and I guess George's ship here. And usually the biggest complaint is just that the latency goes, like, through the roof. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that it might have been Joe Cipriano did a ISDN bridge from a ship connection, and we're talking about, like, in the end, the latency must have been, like, a second and a half or two or something. But, yeah, there, there have been a lot of really crazy connections. We, we need to do one from space. I'm just imagining the, um, the, the airplane voiceover and, you know, halfway through the read in the background, you get, Ladies and gentlemen, please place your seats in the upright position and your tray, tray, <laughs> tray tables up. <laughs> and the funny thing is it was the same talent, so you couldn't exactly tell. No. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I did yeah. try recording a voice track using a Coles lip mic, which is supposed to be what? Extremely directional. It's a ribbon mic that you put right up to your mouth, like the British, like the old British reporters. It's the BBC mic. Yeah, that thing's cool. Yeah. And, um, I tried to do it on an airplane thinking it would filter out a lot of the background noise. It does filter out a lot of noise, but nothing below like 200 hertz. It's not directional down there, so <laughs> it was still a huge awash in noise. But it was an interesting experiment just to happen to have that mic on an airplane. Yeah, yeah. What's the what's the craziest place uh, you've recorded a voice from? I've had voiceovers like where they hire the actor and they're shooting and they just want to get everything done in one day, and they, the guy has to record his announcer part of the script. You know, now in voiceover land. So they literally, you know, like, basically just got in a car and recorded the voiceover from the car. And the biggest problem with that was not making it sound not like a car. It's like every, all these environments have a specific sound, and the inside of a car is a certain tubby sound. Talking about that, there's this TV program that I was talking about before that I mix once a week. They get their, their um, hosts to record the voiceovers for their segments while they're on location. They just bought a Zoom mic. Uh, that they they record into, and one of the uh, one of the presenters decided it would be a great idea that the quietest place to record would be the bathroom of this place that she was recording in. Oh jeez! Oh god! Sent through these voiceovers that were basically unusable. Here's a good nightmare. <laughs> um, so uh, it's it's again in this tradition of people trying to save money, and um, they record this corporate video, and they have lapel mics, and they got this guy in this boardroom. And they've not really hired someone who knows exactly what they're doing, but they've got it framed. The VU meters are bouncing. Okay, let's record this thing. And they're all done, and it goes into post-production. And, and, and this is also funny where people don't really, they're like, oh, yeah, it sounded roomy, but we thought you could just fix it. Yeah, fix and it I'm in like, the mix. This, this is recorded from 20 feet away. Like, there's no fixing this. There's heavy... <laughs> heavy noise reduction and it's going to sound like you have a sock in your mouth when you're all done but basically what happened was they 
never switched the camera to accept the audio from the lapel microphones and instead were using the built-in mic on the camera. No. <laughs> I had a, a similar thing happen to me and it was my fault. Uh, but a friend of mine in, in the UK was putting together a radio special on the Rolling Stones. And there's a guy that uh, was the production manager at Woodstock. He's the guy that got up and said, don't take the brown ones, if you've ever seen the film. Oh, yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. He's that he, guy? That guy. So That's his awesome. name is Chip Monk. Yeah, so Chip Chip moved to Melbourne, oh, years and years ago. But he was, after Woodstock became the Rolling Stones production manager. So my mate Des said, can you, um, can you interview him? And I said, yeah, sure, not a problem. So packed up my laptop, microphone, headed down to his house, did the interview, got back home, played it, and it was like, oh, my God. And, of course, I realised after I recorded this huge interview that the audio card switched to the inbuilt card in the laptop. Oh, no. So nothing was going via the microphone. It was just the crappy thing on the laptop. So anyway, luckily he, um, he was accommodating. So I said, um, how about I come and pick you up tomorrow? drive you to my place and we'll record it properly at my joint. There's so many stories because I listen to so many voice actors' audio because they send me their audio for very ver- various reasons, you know, for quality check and analysis. Like I did, and, I did. yeah, like I did. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, so I've heard it all, and I've, I've heard that one many, many times. You know, it's the microphone on the laptop because they just didn't check, nor do they know enough to check playback and know enough about how it should sound to diagnose that it was the wrong mic. Or they're recording in the field, and then they don't even bother you with headphones, and so they play it back on their laptop, and the laptop speakers aren't good enough to really discern whether you recorded it with the microphone on your your USB interface or the mic on the laptop. So whatever the case is, the client isn't happy with the end result, and they're like, "Why? What happened? What happened?" So that's a that's a common one. That, that's, yeah, it's really yep. easy to do wrong. And there's another one that's uh, kind of common as well. I'm sure you've heard many times where people are addressing the wrong side of the microphone. Sure. Oh, really? That's, sure. Uh, that, hap- that happens a lot, and it seems to happen a lot with Rode NT1s for some reason. Is that right? Yeah, I think they're, they're, the way they're labeled isn't extremely clear for some reason, and I think maybe the name of the mic is on one side, and there's a little gold dot indicating the front of the mic on the other side. I don't know, something weird, but... With the NT1, I'm surprised there's not more people that are talking straight into it like an SM58, because... It's it's not clear that that's a side address mic to a lot of people. When you look at the road and compare it to even like an AKG C1000, I, I've seen people use a lot of side address mics talking right into the top of it. That's that's another problem too, right? Using a side address mic as an end address mic by mistake. That does happen. Um, but uh, <laughs> speaking to the back of it is also equally a bad problem, bad thing. But not as bad as speaking that's... to the side of a figure eight mic. Okay, that's the worst. but it it, it, yeah anyway it does baffle me that uh people who are doing this for a living can't even use a microphone properly but i was interested about the nt1 that that mistake i I suppose when i think about it the cage is actually quite small maybe that's the reason why people think it's uh, an end address mic or something and the cage on that one doesn't have a top it's just like a cage and there's no you know, with a with a U87 or those, you can tell that the side is the major part of it, but the it's kind of a dome. There, there's no real, like, it doesn't have, like, a top or any sort of framework. It's like, there's just a mesh of wires. Yeah. Here's, here's a question yeah. for you guys. When are we going to see the end of the iLock? Because Waves have already moved away from it. I don't think you're going to see the end of the iLock because there's too many... Um, Waves is big enough to be able to take on that entire department. But um, companies like us... That, that just don't have the manpower. There's no way to deal with that type level of encryption and keeping ahead of all the hackers. Uh, yeah. So I, I don't see it going away, or at, at least I don't. See, I don't see third-party protection going away. Yeah. Well, maybe not the iLock system and the encryption, but maybe the iLock key itself, because SourceConnect standard does operate without an actual iLock physical USB iLock. So there, at least there's that option. Yeah, and, like, um, like I lock the company or some third-party service. I, I see that as being for a long time. But and and Source Connect Pro will probably continue to need the physical I lock. There's definitely, as far as I understand, more protection with the physical I lock and the encryptions and putting license on a hard drive. So for the really top-end items, those are. But you know, Source Connect standard and and all those, especially. Also for the level of users, you know, like usually SourceConnect Pro is installed on a workstation, an extra USB port is nothing, 
um, and having the convenience of your licenses in one place. Because after a while, it's it's sort of a separate nightmare having all your licenses buried on a hard drive. Yeah, the convenience thing's always been good for me until, again, coming back to this off-site job, every time I, you know, pack up at one end or the other, you have this heart attack about, shit, what did I do with the iLock? I have a tracker on mine. I, I was at a studio that had an iLock that was worth 30 grand in, in plugins and software yeah. that was on it. I mean, it's like, yeah. it is like, oh my God, yes. That's right. Tell us about your tracker device. Yeah, there's these companies that make these little keychain, key fob things you can attach to anything you don't want to lose. The tracker unit can speak to any other phone via Bluetooth, but it does it sort of like anonymously. It creates a basically a mesh network of all users of all devices that have trackers on them. And then it sends into the cloud the location of your tracker, and then it tells you where your tracker is. I don't know. It's really hard to describe, but wow! if you leave it in the bush, you're screwed. But if you leave it in an urban area where there's other people around with cell phones that it can connect to, then you can tri- triangulate and find the thing. But, it's crazy. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's using other people's services like without them knowing it necessarily. Well, they have to be also using the same service and have the same app on their phone. So it relies on the fact that it's popular enough that there's hundreds, if not thousands, of other users in your in your region using the same system. I need four of those, um, one for each of my kids. <laughs> yes, you put yeah. them on the kids, exactly. <laughs> well, I got I a wristwatch say- for my daughter that does that. I can, I, as long as she charges the damn thing, um, I can figure out where she's at by her wristwatch, uh, which is pretty neat. See, I don't have to worry about my daughter leaving her cell phone anywhere, so... I can track her that way. Yeah, that becomes the yeah, issue too, doesn't it? She's always got her phone in her pocket. Is that what you're saying? She's my daughter. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. It's funny. My my uh, son, he's an absolute screenhead, and it's can't get him off. World of Tanks. That's it. End of story. World. My of- daughter's gotten into Minecraft. That, that's that's what my daughter's I, into. Minecraft yeah. and. She's pretty good with video games, actually. It's kind of scary. How old's your daughter, George? My daughter's going to be nine in February. Ah, okay. Same age as my son. Yeah, but she yeah, loves they both, they Minecraft. To me, very encouraging, actually, because, you know, it's not as much considered a girl thing to be into something like that, generally. And, you know, it's a creative endeavor. It's kind of like virtual Legos, you yeah. know, where you can build entire universes. I, I think it's, it's beyond whole, that. It's, it's, I, I think it's way, way beyond, beyond that. that. Well, the whole Redstone thing, it gets a little bit into almost like programming. It's like object-oriented programming. It is. It is. It's the beginning of learning how to program. In fact, I got her a Christmas present that is a build-it-yourself computer designed around playing Minecraft with a physical screen that you assemble into a little wooden box with switches and buttons and things that all interact with Minecraft. And I think it has an Arduino in there somewhere, too. But, you know, she's going to be learning how to build this thing with my brother who and myself, who all love these kinds of technologies. And it's going to bridge this generation between an 8-year-old and a 40-something-year-old which I think is really exciting. Yeah. yeah, I think it's yeah, it's great. Yeah, my kids love Minecraft. They they um they play that together a lot. Now I've got a question for you. I've been watching uh, a video from um, a guy called Warren Hewitt, who's uh, an English guy living in LA, who's a, a recording engineer and producer, uh, and he does a lot of videos, goes out and interviews people, and he went and saw an audio engineer called Barry Rudolph. And Barry was the engineer. He did, like, Leonard Skinner and Rod Stewart and all those kind of things back in the early 70s and right through until now. But they did a walkthrough of his home studio, and he has a theory of setup for getting the optimum sound quality, and it works on a 25, 38, and 50% ratio. So 25% of the room is behind the monitors. The seat position is at 38% of the room, and the line of treatment ends at, well, the main bulk of treatment ends at 50% with just a diffuser on the back wall. What, how have you set uh, monitoring up, George, when you've done studios? Do you have a set pattern that you work to? You know, there's, there's most of my clients are not monitoring in a, in a controlled environment. They're just like in a bedroom or an office. Um, so not a lot of attention is given to the control room side of it because they're just not producing anything. They're just recording voice track. But yeah. I basically keep it simple, equilateral triangle, try to arrange it so the tweeters are pointing into the ear at ear level or at least angled toward the ear, equidistant to each other. If they're up against a wall, if they have a control on the back for adjusting low end, then, you know, adjust accordingly. Almost every small monitor speaker, especially close to a wall, ends up sounding very wolfy and muddy. 
and doesn't at all represent what somebody actually sounds like in reality. It sounds very bass heavy. So that always has to be dealt with. So, but yeah, that's the, that's the basics behind it. I don't, I don't get to go too much further down the, the rabbit hole in designing control rooms that often, but, uh, that's all, that's all good ideas. Just keeping your monitors off the wall, if at all possible, at least a foot away is nice. If you have that, the luxury of space. Yeah. But there, there's a, there's a thing with audio engineers, especially, and you know, like, like some people are like, Oh God, what monitors do I have to get? Um, so that I know that I'm putting out a professional product and, you, you do need monitors that give you all the information, that's for sure. You need to have, you know, like at least up to like 15K or hopefully, obviously, 20K. And getting down into, you know, certainly at least 100 and hopefully somewhere below that, maybe 50. Or if you're really talking about a good set, getting like some subwoofer stuff. But really, it's about spending time with your monitors and your room and whatever that album is and that content is that you know, it's like for me, I sit down and I'll listen to Ziggy Stardust and I know that album and I know how I want it yep. to sound and then I can know how a pair of speakers sounds and then I can get a general impression if it's a new environment, like, hey, the system is bassy or it's whatever. And I mean, a lot of it really is just knowing them and spending the time to get to know them with content that you already know yourself. It has to translate. That's the term they tend to use is like if you, whatever you are doing in your studio at home has to translate to the rest of the world. And if you don't know how it translates, you're probably not quite ready yet to mix something. Um, the system most people are most familiar with intimately is their car. So it, that's a good place to listen to something back and get a reference of what it could or should sound like. If you've had the same car for eight or 10 years with the same sound system, you know what stuff sounds like in that car. So if you can translate it so it sounds great in the car, then you start to get an idea of what it should sound like on the, the monitors. So if they are bass heavy, well, then you, you know it and you, you're used to the fact that they are bass heavy or one thing or another. And so, but that takes years, takes years. But if you're yeah. a voice talent and you're looking for that sound, maybe a good way to deal with it is to find that spot or that project that you worked on where you were like, that sounds great. I sound my best there. In an ideal world, you can even get like a, you know, a, 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 a unmixed version of it. So you're not listening to music and effects in the background. And then whatever your environment is, listen to that and listen to it over and over and then compare that to the recordings that you get. And, and, and that, that gives you a reference point and something to, to sort of reach for. Yeah. So what with, um, with stuff that you got, because you work in posters as well as uh, source elements, Robert, you would be getting a lot of voiceovers coming in from all sorts of places, from home studios or other studios. How do you prefer to receive that audio? Like straight from the mic with as little processing as possible. If people are going to, like, you know, do their levels... Less is better than overmodulated, so you're better off giving me something that's too low than than it than clipped. If it's clipped, my hands are much more tied. But I prefer not to get things compressed or EQ'd by anybody just right off the mic. Um, you know, that gives the the most flexibility. And what sort of levels would you expect? Um, if it averaged um, if it somewhere av between minus twenty and minus twelve, that'd be great. And let the peaks be what they are. If peaks only ever got up to minus six or even minus ten, I, I wouldn't cry at all. Beautiful. Well, because you um, you checked out what I, I did, which I thought was a fantastic service, George, where you, um, you'd receive people's audio from their setup and then you analyse it and come back with feedback, which is a great service. So what do you listen for? What do I listen for when somebody sends me audio? Yeah. I listen for tonal balance. How is the mid bass to mid to treble? How does that all fit together? Is it too sibilant? Is it too muddy? Is it scooped sounding? Is it nasal? I listen for tonal balance. I listen for noise floor. How what's the signal to noise ratio? How much room tone is there? How much what kind of room tone is it? Is it rumbly? Is it hissy? Is it just sort of a whooshy sound? What how kind what's the room tone like? Uh, and then I listen to uh, I just basic recording levels. Are your levels really low or really really hot? I want to make sure the levels are falling into a nice acceptable range. And um, I'm also going to listen to it for Mic technique, um, are you too far away? Are you talking to the side? Are you talking to the back? Are you eating the mic? Um, and then lastly, the acoustics in the room. So, and the mic placement and the room acoustics all work very closely together. So, you know, bad room acoustics can be somewhat 
compensated for with better mic technique um, and vice versa. But, you know, basically those two go hand in hand. So, yeah, all of those things is what I'm going to evaluate the audio on. Um, unless somebody specifically wants me to evaluate processing or an effects chain, um, I want the audio as raw as possible, as Rob, as Robert said, so that I can say, well, this is what you're putting out there. Now we can take this audio and we can do something with this. I could really make this sound fantastic with a little bit of EQ, a little bit of this and that. So your auditions really... Um, translate to the real world and sound like a real job and then help sell you on the person casting the job. Perfect. You know, the interesting thing is that I discovered only uh, in the last couple of weeks, there is a major brand who are going to be using home studio talent only. Wow. And they will be working all their post-production in one central area. It seemed kind of inevitable that that would, might happen, but... When you say major brand, you're talking about a network? Uh, no, I'm talking about a brand, as in um, a product. A product, got you. Okay. Yeah. So wait, wait. Can you can you cover that one more time? Because I like I, I think my head exploded. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> and and our, so this is presumably in a you know like all the all the creative content, the sound design, the mix, all of that is happening in one spot for this ad agency, basically. Correct. Yeah. So th- this Correct. has been going on for a long time. I mean, it's like this is the this is a different coin in the same pocket of change and and what what it is is like you know all the ad agencies are trying to push everything what they call in-house and so they're hiring their own editors their own yeah. audio engineers etc cetera, etc cetera. um where it ultimately goes it's it's hard to say you know on one side they're they're driving their costs lower um i think that they are it, it depends on how they do it in the environment of the post house and whether or not ad agencies really want to get into the post-production business essentially is, is what it is and and if so how that goes in the long term you know are they going to successfully mentor several generations of people or are they just going to create an environment where no one wants to tell anybody their secrets because they're all afraid they're all trying to get each other's job yeah well maybe that's part of it but the thing i thought was really interesting is this historically they've never done it this way before i, I mean I, i've seen auditions that say that the talent must have their own recording setup and if there is an outside studio to be used it's taken off the talent's fees i've seen postings like that and um i i think there's a huge drive for the studios that are their their bread and butter is, is just hosting voiceover sessions and doing general voice records. I would say there's a lot of competition coming directly from the talent for those studios. I think that's been happening more and more and, and I, I think I mean basically it's like you know, you got these agencies that have in house operations in different cities and in theory they could try to take all their different operations in one city and and do the in-house thing to their own in-house operations. How will that affect you? I'm not thrilled about it, but I, I think that there's always a market for good work, basically. And so I, I think that's the only way to really deal with it. And I think that there's going to be some, you know, it's like pouring water from one jar into the other, and it's going to find its own level. And I think in the end, there's a need for absolute experts and people who are dedicated. And I think that the amount of content that's being created is only going to increase so is is every project appropriate for their in-house thing hopefully not yeah it's it's um well i think it's even you know going beyond where's the production being done i think it also talks we also have to think about how is the voice going to be generated because uh technologies thanks to companies like adobe they've generated the ability to re-edit a voiceover track that's been recorded already using plain word processor style text where you can retype the sentence and it will synthesize out of the recording of your voice the words to complete the sentence. That is bleeding edge technology, but it is nonetheless, it is there and it is coming hard and fast. So basically what it means is that voiceover could, you know, it's going to deal with the same suffered fate as musicians that play real instruments um, that aren't no, no, no longer being hired to be playing in, on gigs. And there's just one guy in a studio with samplers and he can play the entire orchestra and do the entire arrangement at home. That's what's going to happen with voiceover eventually. But there's always going to be a call for real humans at a higher level of production value. They're going to want real people, 
real voices. And just like there are still real orchestras played by real humans in real tracking rooms to this day, um, I think there will always be a demand for the real thing, no matter how good the fake thing is. And I just have faith in that that's going to happen. So whether it's recorded in a home studio or in a commercial studio, that uh, remains to be seen. But the bottom line is not everybody wants to be in a home studio. Not everybody wants to work in that environment until we're all living in our own separate little bubble pods floating around in space. As long as we have a way to see each other face to face and work physically in the same space with each other and share energy and laugh and smile and look at each other and have a bite to eat together, they're always going to want to do that And because we are human. So I have faith that's, that those environments are never going to go away entirely. I'm hoping. That's what I hope. And then, so, and then it's so going to be just, the engineer and everybody's going to be replaced by machines. I mean, you've you got you know, cars <laughs> driven by machines and... Like, actually, you know, talking about the same thing, I want to see this race, like Mario Andretti versus yep. whatever it is that Uber and Google come up with to drive a car. That would be interesting. That would be a but great race. Kind of, yeah. I just saw that UPS bought 125 of the Tesla electric trucks. And Walmart did, too. Them. Walmart bought a bunch of them, too, I think. Wow. Yeah, so, I mean, those are not going to be autonomous right away, but they certainly will be in the very near future. So that it is definitely one of the biggest industries in the world that's going to be disrupted is trucking. Totally. Um, so. And then when we lose our jobs, not being able to work within the voice industry, we won't be able to be truck drivers. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Is that pessimistic? <laughs> Merry Christmas. Oh, boy. <laughs> so what do, you, what do you see as a big uh, innovation for next year, apart from autonomous cars and drones delivering pizzas? Um, we've... We've done the, the, the flashback to the past innovation with VISDN, so that's, um, that's like a big announcement, you know, for us and kind of a new product in a retro kind of way. And, yep. You know, we have a couple of other things, but like a lot of them are just updates, you know, new versions of Nexus that have new features, but generally the same idea. You can just blend it with other, not just the Nexus driver, but any driver on the computer. Um, and and we've, we've got a music overdubbing suite of plugins that makes it easy to, you know, kind of use these remote connections in a more musical sense and deal with the latency directly. Yep, but yep. that's sort of our view on the future technology. Haven't, haven't done the automated studio operator yet. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go there. What do you reckon, George? What do you see as uh, something that will happen next year? Um, not just something totally pulling out of the out, out, outer space. It would be the lack of a need to adjust a gain control anymore. You know, for voice actors, it's getting the gain set right is surprisingly challenging for a lot of people. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's an annoyance to have to deal with it. Um, There's a company out of Germany called Yellowtech that makes the PUC2, Puck2. But it's the USB to AES box or one of those? It does AES, but it also, they have a version that has a standalone mic preamps inside as well. So it's like your typical two channels of mic preamps with a USB jack and a headphone jack kind of box. Those are about a thousand bucks. So, you know, a little dear for the average voice actor, but it has a truly perfectly automated gain setting system that isn't just a one time set and forget. It's not like a one time thing where it, you talk into it and it goes, okay, you need 47 dB and then it stops and that's it. it basically, this thing can continuously ride the gain for you. See, see, I don't does like it, that. Does it, like, like I'm, I'm the audio engineer going like, no, 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 take your hands off that knob because... Well, that's the thing. There's less and less of you guys out there in the production chain doing the majority of the crap that goes on television. Someone has to massage it and get it all into place. Well, that's, that's, that, see, that's the sad thing, Robert, is that somebody doesn't exist now in many, many cases. There, there is nobody at the other end. There is a voice actor recording an affiliate thing for a local ABC network affiliate shouting into a microphone. And then that's being thrown into an avid timeline with music and effects by somebody who doesn't know crap about mixing audio. And that goes out on the air and it sounds like garbage. And that is what's happened. And that, that's, that's what's going on nowadays a lot. So with, with Yellow Tech, what they like the window in time that it sits there and manipulates the game... And when it chooses to change the game, it'll be interesting to see how good it is. Because usually these, I mean, like, it's the nightmare of, like, every phone. It's like the auto game control, the AGC. That's like, it's just like a, it's a compressor. The problem is it's a compressor at its worst. 
You know, it's like pumping and volume fluctuations, and it's this like ideal technology, but it's got to be done really right because if not, it actually causes more problems. And it's got to be yeah. fast. It has to be really fast. Or, it's like or really, really slow. Fast. Yeah. Like, like it needs to be like it's, set it for this session. I've seen the technology at a uh, at NAB. <clears throat> and I've interviewed the German fellow from Pet Yellow Tech a couple of times over the years about their technology. And um, it does pretty much stand alone. I've never seen anything does what it does because it actually is controlling the actual analog microphone gain at the front end with a, like a millisecond or so latency. And um, you can set the parameters upon which it chooses to make those settings as well. You can make it set it and forget it, total idiot mode. But you can go in advanced mode and say... I never wanted to allow it to control the gain more than 10 dB or 12 dB and so on and so forth. And so you can set all the parameters around So it. it's got like um, some compressor-like parameters to it, like like times, attack times, release times, maybe even thresholds. Yeah, I think, I think you have to look at their site to get a better uh, grip on what it's really doing. But it is far superior from anything AGC. It is not a compressor. And it maintains dynamic range. That's what's amazing about it. So you can speak into it softly, and then you can switch gears and yell into the mic. And if, as long as they're not clipping the mic itself, it can swing the gain 40, 30, 40, 50 dB as necessary on the fly without making it sound overmodulated or squished or compressed. It's, it is absolutely amazing. Bring it on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's called the Puck 2... Uh, the Yellow Tech Puck 2, P-U-C-2, Mike Leah, L-E-A. It's it's pretty amazing. So when that technology, if they ever license it outside of their system or somebody else design, designs something that makes it affordable, again, that's I think that's a game changer. It's not really quite affordable yet. It's still about a $1,000 box. We looked at some of the older um, Aphex mic preamps, and they had this thing called Mic Limb. And it was like some sort of way of changing the gain stage on the microphone preamp itself. So it's not like sticking a limiter on the output of it to try to keep you from clipping. When the preamp was working too hard, it would literally pull back on the gain. A little bit like what you're talking about here. They called it mic limb. No, I hadn't heard of that. that. That sounds like a fully analog circuit, right? Yeah, and it's and it's gain control on the mic pre itself, not the output of the mic pre. I wonder why it didn't catch on. I know they got a patent on it. That's fascinating. Well, um, yeah, I mean, this is the only thing to me that's completely wholly new and somewhat undiscovered yet that people aren't really making use of yet, uh, widely yet. You know, if this trickles down to a $100 audio interface, um, it's going to be pretty mind-blowing as long as the resulting product is something the engineer like Robert can make good use of and not be annoyed by the, you know, what it's doing. So that's, that's going to be interesting to it's see. It's all about me. Well, that brings us Good to the close. Good luck editing this thing. <laughs> yeah, that'll be my job. But, it's uh, been fun, though, man. It's been fun. I, I, I'm happy to come back anytime you want to wax on about this kind of thing, and uh, it's always a pleasure to make the time to do it. Yeah. And it's great having you. It's, and I always say with you guys, I mean, there, there is, well, especially you, George, what you offer, there is no one here in Australia that does what you do. and um, And that's why I'm very, very happy to promote your service because I think uh, it's good for all of us, especially if we're working like, you know, myself working from home, to have someone like you on tap that we can, you know, use as a resource to make sure everything's working properly is priceless. Well, I really appreciate you spreading the word and happy to be there for you guys. Anybody that needs anything, you can find me on the web at georgethetech.com. Perfect. Thank you, George. And Robert, um, got to say, I was a bit confused by the uh, VISDN when you first announced it, but um, on thinking about it and hearing more, I think uh, you're right. That is uh, an absolute game changer as far as ISDN is concerned. Thank you. Yeah, we're, we're excited. It's a new product, new year. Yeah. Well, chaps, have a, a, a absolutely wonderful Christmas, and uh, let's hope 2018 is not as horrific as it looks like it could be. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh dear, oh dear. 2017 was pretty rough, so I'm hoping we can only go up from here. We shall see. Well, guys, yeah. as usual, a pleasure to talk to you both. Even more of a pleasure to have you both on together. Uh, and looking forward to more chats next year with you both. Merry Christmas. Bravo, thank you. Thanks, Bravo. Merry Christmas. Thanks, guys. Um, if it's not Merry Christmas, 
happy holidays, happy Hanukkah, yes. whatever, whatever, whatever. As well. Um, but uh, we do have another guest uh, on the phone right now from Road to uh, talk about the new AI1 preamp. Uh, I spoke to uh, Peter during the week. And on the line from Road is Peter Schillebeck, who is the, now I'm assuming you were the designer or certainly part of the design of the new Road interface, the AI1. Is that correct? That's uh, correct. I head up the new product development team here. That's part of that. Developed the AI1. A lot of people have, you know, see it's an audio interface, it's bus powered, and there's lots of them around. But the thing that intrigued me was a couple of things, actually. One was its footprint, uh, the lack of buttons. And you also use Neutrik. So how did you go about starting when you first started building this? Uh, our brief was to design something that was very simple to use, um, was well-constructed up to road standard, um, used high-quality connectors like Neutrik. Uh, but most important of all, sounded like it cost a lot more than it actually does. So audio quality was an extremely important part of the development. So with the, uh, the preamp that's built in there, did you have to go from scratch? So, so we, we looked at all the parts available on the market uh, and we decided that to bring really high quality at a good price, we had to kind of go from scratch. So we designed a complete discrete uh, mic pre uh, from the ground up uh, and that's what we find in the AI1. So we are getting performance uh, that you normally only find in something at least five times the cost. So that's, that's the way we went about it. People have probably picked up already you have an accent and I'm kind of guessing that you're from the Netherlands. Most, I'm just, just next door, Belgium. Ah, okay, so you're Flemish. Oh, see, I should have picked that one up. Um, <laughs> that's my bad. So what, what is your background? I've been developing um, audio products uh, since 2000, so for quite a long time. Uh, I was uh, head, well, first junior engineer and eventually uh, head of engineering at a company called Soundfield, making uh, high-end surround sound microphones, uh, and then spent five years developing high-end broadcast equipment at a company called TSL, and then joined Rode uh, exactly a year ago. And moved to Australia? Uh, and moved to Australia, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Living in the UK for, for a very, very long time, uh, and then, yeah, moved here. So this is our first year here in Australia. So the other thing that uh, intrigues me about the AI1 is also that, now I haven't tested it, but I've heard that the headphone amp is actually really good. And the one issue that I always have with these uh, bus-powered interfaces, I have trouble actually hearing detail. But I hear that your um, headphone amp is really, really good. Yeah, we, we took the same approach as we did with uh, the mic pre. Um, our brief was to make a very high-quality, nice-sounding, low-noise uh, headphone amplifier that can uh, give plenty of output. Because uh, I think a lot of the units uh, at this price point, but actually at far higher price points as well, um, might sound clean, but they just lack uh, complete grunts. And what that really means, especially for voiceover work, um, is you need that level. You need to be able to turn up the game because if you have highly compressed music, Yes, that's one thing, but once you're speaking live into a microphone, high dynamic range, uh, you need a lot more gain. So this headphone amplifier delivers that in spades, but at the same time has a really nice sound quality and is very low noise. So if you plug in your headphones and you crank the headphone amp all the way up with nothing plugged in, um, you'll find silence, which is very nice. Yeah, yeah. But one of the questions was that I, I, someone asked me when I, I sent them the link and said, look, you know, have a look at this, see what you think. And I, I spoke to them afterwards about the fact that I'm told that you actually can get a, a hell of a lot more level out of the headphone amp than you can with the other interfaces. Their question was, well, based on the amount of voltage you can pull out of a USB point, how, do they, how have they done that? Well, well I think in, in the uh, audio world, there's a bit of this myth that um, USB can't deliver a lot of power. Actually, USB can deliver a lot of power. There's a lot of grunt there. You've got five volts, you know, and there is uh, several amps to go at. Uh, so, you know, people bring this up as a, as a reason why a headphone amp is not that powerful, why that uh, phantom power is not fully up to spec. But in reality, it's not a valid excuse at all. Uh, and we're not doing anything magical here. We're just doing it properly. Um, so, yeah, we, we are using what is available to us. Um, and, and actually, we are only a quarter of the way there from uh, maximum power consumption. So it's not like we are drawing the full amp at 5 volts. We're drawing less than a quarter of that. Um, so, yeah, we could 
build four of those headphone amps and we'd still be fine. So I think it's a little bit of a myth and I think something other manufacturers might have been uh, hiding behind. Uh, same with the, the Phantom Power. Yeah, we, we fully comply to Phantom Power spec. So you can draw the full 48 volts across the 6K8, about 10 milliamps, without any problems whatsoever. It's always been the bus power issue that uh, everyone complains about. Yeah, so we, we tested lots and lots of interfaces, obviously, before we embarked on this, you know, and looked at what we liked, what we didn't like, and, and so on. Uh, and we didn't find a single interface that had a headphone amp that we thought was up to scratch. Some of them were sonically very nice, but then they just didn't have the level. Uh, and then others might have had a bit more level, but then ended up being very, very hissy and very noisy. So again, you lose your fidelity. Um, so yeah, that was that was a really important part when we set off on this journey. So how long did it take in development stage? Uh, it was actually a very, a very quick uh, cycle. Uh, we had a, a lot of uh, building blocks, um, you know, ready to go. We did some experimentation before. But start to finish, it was a, a six-month uh, project. Wow, that's pretty good. So with the brief, was it to do, the, obviously you had high quality, but was there other bits in the brief that you had to make work that no one had done before? Um, I, I think simplicity. Uh, I think other people have also done simplicity, but basically we have only two controls on the front. They are rotary push controls, you know, so it's mic pre and headphone volume, and then you can press the mic pre for phantom power, and then you can press the headphone volume to enable or disable uh, direct monitoring, uh, and that's it. So I think simplicity was real key. Uh, a lot of interfaces have a lot of separate little buttons everywhere, and little switches and little dials you have to try and wrap your head around. So I think that was key. Um, also, we wanted to make something that felt quality as well, not just sound quality, but also felt quality. So it's a fully uh, zinc casted casing, and it has a you know full metal enclosure. So even the bottom is fully shielded off in metal. So as a result, it has a a nice weight to it, so it doesn't slide off your desk when you plug in uh, an XLR cable, for example, or anything like that. So it's, yeah, so, so those things are also important. You know, a product is not just audio quality, it's also how it looks, how it feels, how it behaves, etc. And usability. So a lot of interfaces, small and big, have a complex set of drivers you have to install or software you need to install just in order to run a device. We are completely driverless, so we are USB audio class compliant. So if you plug us into a PC or a Mac, we will just function without having to install anything. So yeah, so that's that's very important from a usability point of view. Uh, you don't need to, you know, study the manual for ten hours before you can start using it. And it also comes with um, an editing editing program as well, if my memory serves me correctly. Yeah. So we uh, include a free license, which once you register the product, you can get a key for from our website called Ableton Live and basically if you get that together with the NT1 kit because it actually ships with the NT1 microphone you pretty much have a complete studio solution so if you bring a mic stand and you bring a computer you're up and running yeah it's a great idea now the question is what's on the drawing board you're obviously not there to do one product I would imagine you're there to do quite a lot of products uh, there's lots of ideas uh, we've had lots of internal discussions what we ultimately do, that's uh, up to us, and you'll find that when they come out. Yeah. There was one thing that I was talking to a mate about, and uh, we both have road products here. And the one thing that um, we've discussed and we think is missing, you may disagree, is because you have that facility to build whatever you like, a, a, like a super high-quality top-end microphone. Have Road ever thought about going down that track? Um, well, well, yeah, actually. So the, the, we are about to start uh, launching, and it has been announced, uh, the TSM-50, uh, which is based on the original uh, M50 spherical Omni microphone, and it comes as a stereo pair with a stereo power supply, and that's really aimed at really high-end classical recording. And then there are a couple of other products within that really high-end sphere that will be uh, seeing the light of day sometime in 2018. I'm going to look forward to that one, that's for sure. Well, have yourself a lovely Christmas. Thanks for uh, jumping on the show and telling us about the uh, the AI1, the audio interface from Rode. Um, I reckon it looks fantastic. Be perfect one for Christmas, even though 
I'm sure the stocking's already full, but there may be a voucher in there that you can use to buy one. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Lovely. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Bye. Well, there's something else for the Christmas stocking. Yes, indeed. Actually, a mate of mine uh, got one, and, mm. um, yeah, he said it's pretty damn good. Right. So, Did you drop the subtle hint that we needed a few test models to, you know, try out in the studios? <laughs> <laughs> mate, you've got to be on the list, you know. You have yeah, to be on the I list. Know. Yeah, I've been, I've been, I'm on the naughty list. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're going to have the golden ticket. That's right, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. mate, it's been a pleasure. Uh, another year of the VO Radio Showdown. It's been a pleasure sharing it with you. And you as well. I can't believe it's another year. I know. Crazy, right? But, uh, oh, man. Hopefully next year there'll be uh, a few more advances that we can talk about and a few, more, uh, a few more meetings in the podcast universe. Yes, indeed. And do you realise we've actually cracked, I think, 23 years of knowing each other? Wow. I don't doubt that. It's, it feels like That's a long time. <laughs> oh, thanks very much. <laughs> no, geez, all those years ago, where was it? Triple M in Perth. It was indeed. Mm, there you go. Wow. I walked into the radio station for the first time and out popped this head from the office. G'day, I'm Andrew. <laughs> My life was never the same. <laughs> Mine either. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> it wasn't my head. <laughs> uh, we'll enjoy your New Year celebrations. Lovely, we'll do. And, uh, and uh, oh, we should share the should share the lofty gag as well. Oh about yes, Santa, because you know Santa's not very well at the moment. No, uh, apparently he's, not. He's, no, he's got tinselitis. <laughs> Thank you, Lofty Fulton, for that uh, one. Yeah. yeah, he's having a few problems with his elf. That's All it. right. On that note. It. Ho, 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 ho. See you next year, everyone. <laughs> right. The VO Radio Show is produced in the studios of Voodoo Sound. To polish your next audio production, check us out at voodoo-sound.com. Find professional voices simply all in one place. Realtimecasting.com, including me.